So hello everyone watching, listening, good morning from Denver this time and welcome back to the Free Radical Podcast, episode number two. And this is your host Swami Padmanabhan here today, very happy to be in the company of a dear friend, brother and companion on this Bhakti journey, Jai Jagannath Prabhu. Jai Jagannath, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me. So a few words on Jai Jagannath Prabhu for those who do not know him. An introduction, Jai Jagannath to begin with, he has been considerably uh, brief and shy in sharing his own bio with me. <laughs> so I've been forced to take some shelter in one of his dear friends, Namrasa Prabhu, to share a few words about him. So the following words that I will share come from a mix of what Namrasa and Prabhu share with me and a little bio that appears in Jai Jagannath Prabhu's website. So it says like this. Jai Jagannath Das was born and grew up in Chicago, United States. He embraced Gaudiya Vaishnavism in the early 2000s and has lived as a monastic for almost 15 years. After monasticism, he has traveled the world, including South America, Europe, South Asia, and North America. Using the scholarship and wisdom gained from years of rigorous practice to give workshops and seminars on sacred literature as well as offering mentorship and counseling for over a decade to many practitioners. Jai Jagannath is an accomplished kirtaniya and cello player. I didn't know about that one. That's ongoing, so... <laughs> <laughs> you can speak with Namras about that. And with his charisma and personality, he demonstrates the relevance of the sacred metaphysics of Vedanta to the postmodern world with regular online classes in which he invites his hearers to deepen their experience of bhakti. Mm -hmm. For those who would like to know a little bit more of Jai Jagannath, this is the website. It's science-of-yoga.ghost.ao. <laughs> Super accessible. Super accessible, totally. <laughs> so in my personal case, I, I met Jai Jagannath a few years ago, I think in the Bhakti Center, first time in New York. We have a few exchanges here and there. A few times I visited there. And I got a very nice experience of him. Uh, Namras introduced me to him as well. And this year in particular, we are getting to know each other a little bit more through a series of meetings we have had already. I, we, have, we made a retreat together in, in Cali uh, some, for some days, a few months ago. <clears throat> uh, what else? We met in North Carolina for a few days. Now we met in Alacha for another days. We'll meet in Michigan in a few weeks for another retreat. And also Jai Jagannath Prabhu has been kind enough to invite me to a Dandavat Parikran retreat he's organizing in Govardhan for Kartik and Vrindavan. So hopefully we can also make a grand finale to this year's <laughs> unfolding of the relationship over there kissing the sacred earth of Braj. So anyhow, Jai Jagannath, what, a few words. Tell me a few words to me or to our audience. Why? why you have accepted to be today with us and what moved to you to be here or also since this podcast somehow revolves around the, the notion of radical personalism or the contents of the book and the series I made. If you want to share any thoughts about that as well, whatever you may like to share in this connection. <clears throat> well, the only reason I decided to do the podcast is because you kindly asked me to do it. Um, as a as a friend, as a new friendship, and one that's as you described is like unfolding, especially a lot this year, 
it, it appears that destiny has brought us together for some reason um, that is mysterious to myself, at least. And um, <clears throat> so for me, it's like kind of an honoring of what mysterious Lord is arranging in my life in the form of your friendship. And so my accepting the podcast was just a sort of honoring of the new friendship and honoring of God's arrangement in my life for, for this friendship. Otherwise, re in recent times, I've kind of been in a, like in a misanthropic mood. Like I can't stand people. I love devotees though, but even being around like huge gatherings, like anything over 10 is like huge to me. I've been mm -hmm. finding it a little bit overwhelming. I think it's a result of staying in Govardhan by myself for some years. Uh, not some years, but like a period of month, like concentrated months of aloneness, which I came to like. So I've been kind of like in a misanthropic mood. So when you first sent me the message, I was like, oh, absolutely not. I don't want to be out in public eye. Plus the internet's a little bit ghetto. Facebook is out of control. And um, I, I felt that one. I felt that vibe. Yeah, in the beginning. <laughs> And um, yeah, of course I have my like history on Facebook of like agitating the environment a little bit, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. So I wasn't like, I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to re-enter that space again, but to honor the, the budding relationship and God's arrangement in my life, that was my inspiration for coming on here and trying to say something about the topic. I think the topic we have for today is radical individuation that particular topic yeah so um yeah i thought i have some ideas that could possibly be meaningful and useful so that's how okay let me give it a go thank you so much and i really appreciate your words in terms of like honoring the mystery like how relationships unfold and how bhagavan puts people together and make them cross their paths in a way that it's not planned, it's not organized, at least not from my part, not from yours as well. So not from my part. All the things that happened during the last year were in my plan. So again, it's part of the unfolding mystery. And, and I really like that, that way of expressing reality. Like we are on a daily basis trying to honor the unfolding mystery of it all. And so and again, our friendship, budding friendship is part of that. So... And, and I'm excited to, to see what the mystery has to tell us today and the rest of forever. So <laughs> thank you. Thank you for that. So, yeah, as you mentioned, the, the title for today, I mean, we will be now I will be reading a section from the book, as you mentioned, connected to radical individuation. But the title, official title of the podcast is The Need for Crafting Our Own Version of Bhakti. And, and I thought personally about that, this type of theme for our episode with Jai Jagannath especially after sharing with Jai Jagan at this retreat in Cali, we had a few weeks ago or even months in Sham Ashram in Colombia, uh, where he spoke about living a life of prayer, which I really appreciated even to begin with the title of it all, presenting prayer as a lifestyle. Uh, and he will continue talking on related topics as well in our retreat in Michigan, which will be in a few weeks and also I have the link here for those who would like to join it's a even easier link than than the website of Jai Jagannath as you can see <laughs> tickettailor.com slash events slash the harmony collective slash 939416 for those who are only hearing and not seeing the number 
So for those who would like to join, still there are a few places left there. And Jagannath will be talking on prayer, if I'm not mistaken, and other approaches to back in that connection, contemplative connection. So somehow this podcast will be in a way a trailer to the presentation. Let's see. Uh, so today, as Jagannath mentioned, we'll be talking about uh, radical individuation, which appears in the second part of the radical personalism book that this series is about. So it's in page 94 for those who have the book, and I will read for you a brief section, and from there we will try to unfold what this speaks about. So it says like this. In complement to the universal principles consensually followed by almost every member of the Gaudiya tradition, we should also stress the importance of creating a personal rule of life or both arm patterns that matter to each of us as individuals. The rule of life, although differing from one practitioner to another, will be as crucial as, or, more, or even more so than, the global regulations followed by the majority. We call this radical individuation. So for me, this topic of individuation is so important that I actually made a whole separate chapter in my book about it. But the specific thing that triggered me in talking about this today with Jai Jagannath in connection to this Kali retreat that I mentioned is that I remember him emphasizing at one point the different angas of bhakti, different expressions of the devotional experience, how different devotees can attain perfection through different angas of bhakti, which is a basic point that we most of us know as Bhaktas, but struck to me in a particular way in this connection, according to their mood, according to their taste and necessity, every devotee can attain their unique perfection in bhakti. And that's why today's episode has been called The Need for Crafting, our own version of bhakti. So please, Dear Jagannath, any thoughts you would like to share to be with in, in this? <clears throat> yeah, I think where I would like to start is the title of the show, Crafting Our Own Version of Bhakti. Um, when I, I actually didn't look at the title until this morning. <laughs> okay. That's Jai Jagannath. So that's for you. Those who you I, know, I know you like sent it to me like two or three weeks ago, but um, because of the constant travel and uh, the deluge of messages that I get every day, I usually don't put attention to something that's right upon me. <clears throat> so I just saw the title this morning and it struck me. The first thing that it struck was like, oh, I was like, I wonder if this was like clickbaity, you know, crafting our own version of bhakti, I guess just as a matter of theological clarification from my side and personal conviction, <clears throat> we hear that bhakti is the internal energy of the Lord. And so ontologically we stand in a, inferior is not the best word, but a subordinate position to that energy. And so the title, when it, the way that it first struck me, like crafting our own version of bhakti makes it sound like that that energy is under our control and we can like shape it in any way that we want. And I, I don't think most devotees think that way, but the, the title could have maybe conveyed that message inadvertently. And then I was like, oh, I wonder if that was on purpose to make it like more exciting, especially for those who are like, you know, theological adherents, like, hey, absolutely not. <clears throat> yeah. You can't craft your own version of bhakti. Bhakti is what it is. So I thought, okay, that's pretty clever if it was just like a clickbaity sort of thing to get people to, yeah. you know, see what we have to say about that. But that was like the first thing that struck me was like, okay, bhakti is a superior energy. We stand 
ontologically subordinate to that energy. And so in a sense, we can only be witness to that energy's unfoldment in our life. And we can choose to participate in that unfoldment or resist it. And so for me, when it says, when I think of the word crafting, I think of more like taking the responsibility to see how bhakti is unfolding in our life and respond to that instead of trying to respond to like the imposition of the way things should be as maybe spoken to us by like, let's say like an institutional or communal protocol that mm -hmm. bhakti should be like this or look in this way. But see like, no, bhakti is, is unfolding in my life in a very specific way that may not move according to the standard protocol or status quo of any community or sangha or institution. And I have to respond to that unfoldment mm -hmm. um, in a particular way. I can't necessarily respond in a way that is like the, the protocol way of responding. So in that sense, yeah, the, the jiva by constitution can only be a witness of reality. And also by constitution, with that minute kartritwa, that minute agency um, in the jiva, the jiva can choose to participate or resist, but he can't really shape that energy himself. He can only respond to it. And so, yeah, I guess I just wanted to get that out of the way before we like jumped into the yeah. yeah thank, thank you for that because yeah, it was a clickbait, and I was also open for the initial disclaimer that you mentioned that. Of course, I totally agree. You somehow summarized my first book, which is all about bhakti <laughs> in the <laughs> So for those who read my book will will know that I'm not in opposition to what Jay Jagan just mentioned. And, and I was thinking when you were describing that, in one sense, of course, at the same time, bhakti is unfolding in our lives in a particular way. We are subordinate to that higher energy. And we have this minute kartritwa or doership or agency. And we can choose, I will say, and, and, and that will be a way of reshaping the title of the lecture, which is not so clickbait-like, but <laughs> crafting our reply to how Bhakti chooses to craft ourselves. Something mm. like this, no? Because yeah, Bhakti comes, I'm, as, as I mentioned in my first book, I'm not doing Bhakti, but Bhakti is doing me, so to say. Right. But also, yeah, Bhakti is unfolding in a certain way, and, and I choose not only to accept or not unfolding, but there is a certain way of how do I allow myself to be crafted by bhakti so mm. in that particular initiative. But as you may imagine, it would have been a little bit uh, complicated to name the, the episode, like crafting or reply to how bhakti chooses to craft me. So that's why I put the, the, sim the more simplistic version of it. But yeah, thank you and for the a clickbaity click sort of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I learned that from my podcast, Acharya Namras as well. <laughs> So thank you for the initial disclaimer and yes. So in, in relationship to that idea of the mm -hmm. self being by constitution a witness of reality, and we can either respond to that by participating or resist it. Um, I think the subject matter of individuation kind of constellates around how we respond to that mystical and mysterious unfoldment in our life or how we resist it. That's basically at, where, where the topic for me at least constellates around. And mm -hmm. I think perhaps the way that we have learned about devotion can in some ways facilitate a greater resistance to how bhakti is unfolding in our life because 
it may move in ways that are not congruent or matching the way that we think it should be um, according to the sort of culture that we grew up in. And so whether it's this, an institutional culture or a certain small sangha or however you've heard, and of course, not just hearing, but how you conceived of what you've heard, you know, all these factors can play into the, um, our capacity to respond or resist that sort of spiritual unfoldment um, of devotion in our life. <clears throat> so that, yeah, I, I think um, in your book, you quoted this particular verse, which is a favorite one of mine. Vitaraga Paya Krodha Manmaya Mamupashita. This uh -huh. is 14 Bhagavad Gita. And you quote it, you made reference to it in of course Parapad's purport to that, which happens to be one of my favorite purports of the Bhagavad Gita, precisely because of this point about individuation. Hmm. And in any case, the context of the verse is Krishna speaking about his avatar doctrine, you know, how he appears in this world, why he appears in this world, what he does when he appears in this world. And then in 4.9, he says, anyone who understands the truth of his appearance, they can attain liberation. And then he encourages us by saying, many people have done this in the past. Mm -hmm. Many have done this in the past, but after giving up attachment, fear, and anger. And um, Parapa's comment, of course, to, specifically to fear, is that we're afraid of being persons. And therefore, we tend to lean towards an impersonalism, either ontologically where we want to merge into the impersonal Brahman, or in a more practical impersonalism, we tend to lean into like status quo, which you also mentioned in your book. It's like a leaning towards what the collective is doing. And we're afraid to like stick out in any way because that could mean our condemnation by the collective um, audience of our sangha, of our community, of our institution. And so we're actually afraid to individuate. <laughs> and so only those who give up such fear, you know, puttamabhavam agata, being purified by the austerity of knowledge, they can attain a nature like mine, madbhavam, you know, which madbhavam means like a nature like Krishna or madbhavam, <clears throat> bhakti for Godias. We can attain that bhava, which is the goal of our spiritual practice, but only after we give up the fear of individuating. And so that always was like a fascinating notion to me that we're afraid to individuate and that we lean towards impersonalism. Um, and on the, like on the real practical level, because I don't think any devotees aim for Brahman. Like we've gotten too much theological information to be like aiming for Brahman. But just like inadvertently, the, the, the social environment that we are brought up in um, and just like human nature, it looks for belonging, it looks for validation, it looks for social acceptance, et cetera. And so because of all those factors, they kind of support a resistance to individuation. And therefore, from this verse and Prabhupada's comment on it, comment on it, only those who can overcome this fear to individuate, and we would say practically, and we would also say ontologically, like spiritually. And I'll, give, I'll try to get back to that if the conversation facilitates it. But only those who can give up that fear will be able to actually individuate. I think there's one other element. Well, there are two other elements from the verse also. So there's the fear part, and then there's the anger part also, which I, I find to be an interesting component to the topic as well. Because anger, the way Prabhupada speaks about anger is that one looks at so much hypocrisy or contradiction in one's spiritual community. 
And out of a sense of anger, you tend to want to give it up. And, mm. and I think Prabhupada comments, and you may take to some intoxication, mm. you know, and um, either literal intoxication, or maybe you just jump back into the pool of material existence and allow yourself to be deluded by an old philosophy of I'll enjoy the material world. But we tend mm. to take to intoxication because of anger, seeing contradictions. And I, I was thinking about that element too, and how it, how it nourishes our resistance to individuation because there's there's not only the anger of seeing hypocrisy and contradiction like um, in others but also the anger i think maybe like a self anger where you see contradiction in yourself you also experience like an absence of experience mm-hmm. you an absence of experience of the claims of the tradition an absence of experience of personal and collective integrity and the sangha and as a result of that you get angry but I think maybe even at the root of that anger is like grief. We're like grieving mm-hmm. the fact that we've been, I don't want to say we've been duped. We haven't been duped, but we're grieving the fact that things didn't match the way that we thought. Mm-hmm. You know, there wasn't a coherence between what we thought and what we're actually experiencing. But I think it's also the nature of reality because we're, our perceptual world is like this small and reality is this big. So there's always going to be like an incoherence. And I think maybe as we're breaking into greater truth and greater experience of reality, there's a sense of like needing to grieve that, you know, grieve that lower level of perception that we were on. And I think in some ways, because grief isn't like a subject matter that we talk about a lot in our sanghas, um, you know, uh, what is the verse? A shochan of a shochas twam pragam, but don't say. You know, those who are learning don't lament or grieve mm. for the living or dying. So grief isn't like a like a talking point for our tradition, but as a human experience, it's like if we don't learn to grieve the loss of expectation, to grieve the loss of maybe certain potentials in ourselves that didn't get activated because we were kind of on the wrong track for 10 or 15 years. Like there's a sense if you don't grieve that, it like sits in your psyche and it sits in your body. And it also arrests the inspiration for individuation before God. So this verse, Vitaraga Bhaya for me is like extremely profound verse, mm-hmm. which we also reference in the in the in the in your book to this topic specifically. Mm-hmm. I've already said a lot, but yeah, I No, 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 it's great. Thank you. Yeah, that's a, a very, very interesting verse, and that's why I've chosen to quote it, among others. And I appreciate your, I mean, many points you mentioned, one of them being this point of, I mean, in connection to what's individuation, because for some of our hearers, they may have heard, maybe hearing this word for the first time also. So individuation, of course, originally maybe more Jungian term, but right. it's connected to the integration of the, the, let's say in brief words, the integration of different layers of our uh, individual personality <clears throat> and all of our experiences, not to dismiss any of our human experiences as sadhakas, but trying to make all them part in, in, in all that we can be as persons, basically. And we are a person, but we how much of a person we are and how much of a person we should s- still become, so to say. So I, I appreciate your point of <clears throat> on, on, on individuation and and grief and lamentation because, of course, sometimes we hear this idea we shouldn't lament, but also, for example, Srila Prabhupada many times will say we should not lament for those things which are not worthy of lamentation. 
So there he makes a point. There's a worthy a lamentation which is worthwhile, so to say. Uh, and of course, it's not only the lamentation of Mahaprabhu and the Gambira crying in divine love in separation. Of course, that's one of those. But as sadhakas, what's the corresponding healthy lamentation for us as sadhakas? So we integrate those layers of grief, as you mentioned, uh, in our individuation, in our part, in, in our own personality. Because if we dismiss those things, those are unintegrated layers that will get on the way of our practice. Uh, <clears throat> so again, I will say, emphasize this point, do not lament unnecessarily for those things which are not worthy of lamentation, but, but it's important to learn to, yeah, to grieve, to mourn, to lament for those things which as sadakas, as human sadakas, I like always to relate these two words, <laughs> are part of our human experience and anything is to be dismissed, but everything is to be integrated. Now, that's real transcendence for me. And regarding the verse of the Gita that you mentioned, of course, uh, there are many things to unfold from there. But two things that came to mind were, of course, first you mentioned this idea, we are afraid to be persons. And that's a very, of course, confronting, truth-telling <laughs> one-liner, but it's real, real true, really true. I mean, we are... On one side, we are promoting Supreme Personality of Godhead. And as I put in my book, you want to relate to the Supreme Personality of Godhead. That's challenging because he's this God in his most individualized, individuated way. <laughs> Sri Krishna is the Supreme Personality of Godhead. So for relating to the Supreme Personality of Godhead, you have to develop the Supreme Personality of yourself. You have to be fully individuated. But many times we are terrified about being someone been having to take responsibility, response ability, <laughs> how we react to what's coming to us. That I like the, the implications of the etymology of the word that you were talking about, bhakti unfolding in our lives. So what do we do with that unfolding? How we, which with ability do we respond to that? Which response ability <laughs> are we taking that? And yeah, many of us prefer to merge, not maybe into Brahman, but to merge into the masses, to merge into the statu quo, to merge into mediocrity and complacency and just following the current, whatever everyone says must be okay. I cannot dare think differently from majorities. So that's a form of sayuja, so to say. That's a form of illegal merging, you know? being one more face in the crowd without any critical thinking, and again, I can understand that at the beginning of the practice, we may be in kindergarten bhakti, and it's okay. There is place for imitation. There is place for not having a personal criteria for, for doing what everyone else is doing. But eventually, we should be fostering and, and promoting a healthy, again, individuation, expression of our integrated individuality. Yeah, just to that one little point before yeah. you move on. Yeah. This, there's a room for, like, imitation. There's a room for, like... I think you used the word kindergarten. When I was in India this last trip, um, there was a yatra going on of one of my god brothers. Um, and their sangha, and their sangha, they all have, they all dress exactly like, you know, they have to wear like long sleeve kurta and dhoti. And it can't be a short sleeve kurta, it's gotta be a long sleeve kurta. And that's just like part of the ethic of that community. And um, I remember when I, saw that this was probably like in October, my knee-jerk reaction was like, 
you know, I was like, you I, won't fit in that community, Jajana. I can tell you. I, 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 not, even as a Brahmachari, I didn't fit in that community, which was <laughs> fine. But my knee-jerk reaction was like to be like, I, I don't appall is too strong of a word, but I was kind of like shook, like, oh my god, everyone was like looking exactly the same, and. But then I like sat with that feeling a little bit because I didn't like the fact that it was kind of more the negative polarity of things. So I kind of just sat and shared and was just observing the devotees. And then I was like, no, actually it's beautiful. They're like kind of like an ocean of milk. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was kind of how, like how I had to hijack my negativity at that moment. I like, they actually look kind of like an ocean of milk. And it's actually, in that sense, it's very beautiful. The ocean of milk is very beautiful. But out of that emotion, out of that ocean of milk, there also came Dhammantari and Goddess Lakshmi and the moon and all these like individuated entities emerged. Poison, poison. First poison, of all, poison. Yeah, first, first you have to do poison. something. Do something with the poison I to, first. I want to stick with the you, positive stuff. You jumped too much into the highlight. Start with the poison first. Please. Yeah, start with the poison. And Let's I think be realistic. That's probably, that's probably <laughs> an important image to come back to also, just archetypically speaking. But yeah, I was thinking, um, I didn't think about the poison part so much. I was thinking about the goddess of Lakshmi and the moon and, yeah. and how all these individuated creatures emerge from the ocean of milk. So I was like, both are beautiful on the level at which they exist. So, you know, to be kind of like part of the collective, to find your sense of belonging, your sense of identity and ego in relationship to the devotees, in relationship to Krishna through the devotees, that's like critical for the process of individuation. Yeah. But then on a higher level of that unfolding of individuation, mm -hmm. then there's the need to become like a Dhammantri, a Goddess Lakshmi, a moon uh, amongst the stars, so to speak. And that's also beautiful on a, on a different level, I would even say higher level of individuation. Hmm. And um, yeah, so just like there's room for that, but want to just kind of like ride the wave, so to speak, of status quo and belonging. But then there has to also be like the awareness that true unfoldment requires more. Um, yeah, it requires becoming a moon, basically. Hmm. From poison to moon. From, from poison <laughs> to moon. Turning yeah. from poison to moon. Yeah, I agree. And, and all that is part of individuation, again, to allow those initial kindergarten copy-paste, so to say, stages, which we are not condemning. They have their own beauty, like you see a baby without too much critical thinking yet, but it, it's totally charming in his own way. <laughs> and sometimes adults are not as charming as a baby <laughs> because they are not too individuated, I would say. I mean, mm -hmm. if you are an individuated adult, you, I, hopefully you should be at least as charming as a, as a baby. <laughs> But sometimes we find the baby more charming because adults are not very charmed because they are not very individuated. <laughs> but yeah, I agree with, with your point that there is place. It's important to bear in mind all this nuance of sequence in, in, in how the unfolding of individuation takes place. And, and the two things have to be allowed. The, the allowance for uh, a very similar way of doing things, imitation-like, so to say, in certain stage, but also the need for eventually growing up from that and, and entering into the moon Lakshmi stage. And in between, again, those two is the poison coming, which I really always appreciated that section because, yeah, we could say the churning of the ocean is like the individuation process. I mean, practicing bhakti, 
trying to be a person and offer your individuality for the pleasure of Krishna is stirring the Tao, as I say, no stirring, like churning, individuation. And, and yeah, probably the first thing that comes maybe poison in the sense of unintegrated complexity, as I like to put it. No, elements that are not integrated, but they are floating on, on the on my inner constellation. That's why you going back for a minute to this Gita verse you quoted before. This idea of self-anger, and sometimes we, we, we I, I think we talked about that in, in, in Alacha when we were there, like sometimes uh, in, in, in anger, behind anger is, as you mentioned, lots of pain and lots of grief. And when someone is angry at you or angry at life, it's, it's important to be compassionate with them to understand behind that there is some pain. And behind that pain, as you mentioned, probably there is some uh, frustration or, or even bewilderment in terms of, yeah, I, I expected things to go in a certain way. And and I'm starting to realize that life life is a mystery, actually. It's not something I can, I'm supposed to grasp, I'm supposed to control, which again, this is our things that we hear from day one, but how much we have integrated them. You know? Even spiritual life is not about to control. And I, and I wrote this whole chapter of, of divine ignorance trying to make that point. Like we have to, as Gaudiya Bhaisnav, I personally feel we need to, and I don't want to di divert myself too much to the topic, but sometimes we are too much addicted to certainty because we have so much detailed information about who God is and what he's doing and all this theological minutiae. But that takes us to the situation where we don't, we do not, are not too much willing to coexist with mystery, with uncertainty, <laughs> with all these elements that come, the unknown. And, and those are just crucial for uh, individuation because individuation is take all those elements that are unintegrated and make them part of the equation, so to say. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, you know, this, this imagery of the poison before the moon part mm -hmm. and what you've just spoken now I feel like indigenous cultures, like in India and the world over, they used to have like rites and rituals around these sorts of like critical, I don't know how to say it, like critical mass points of transformation. Yeah. Yeah. Like for example, from adolescence to adulthood, it's like a critical yeah. mass point. Or from, you know, the, your youth life to old age, like another critical mass point. Of course, from life to death, another critical mass point. So it seems like indigenous cultures, they had like rites and rituals. Like rites of passage, so to say also. Say what? Like rites of passage or something yeah, rites like this. Like some scars we might call sometimes. Right, yeah. some scars or rites of passage to help us integrate those unintegrated energies at those critical mass points, so mm -hmm. to speak. You know, basically, in other words, the critical mass point is kind of experienced as a crisis. And the crisis, of course, just means like a decision needs to be made. Are you going to go left or are you going to go right? And whatever decision you make at this critical mass point will determine the trajectory for a lot of future energy. Mm. So it's, it's critical and it's experienced as a crisis, like emotionally, but it's not negative. It's exactly. just like a decision that needs to be made. But in the postmodern world, we don't have those same containers of rituals, those same containers of rites of passage. And so when we meet with these sort of disintegrating features of our normal world, like mm -hmm. our sense of knowledge, our sense of, you know, convictions and the process that's going to work for us, when we meet with the disintegration of that part, instead of like 
seeing it as God inviting us for interior upgrade, we, we tend to like direct that energy outward towards the environment. Oh, it's the institution's fault. Oh, if only the devotees were like this, then this would have never happened and my faith wouldn't, would be intact. It's like, no, this is actually, this is actually the process of nature. First of all, it's the process of nature. There's genesis, there's sustenance, and then there's like this period of dissolution. Mm-hmm. There's just a, a, a healthy part of nature's unfolding, of nature's evolution. Yeah. And if you look, if you like look back even a little bit deeper, it's really God inviting you for interior upgrade. But because like as a culture, we haven't really prepared containers to help people through these critical mass periods. Mm. <clears throat> the critical mass period is like, um, sorry if that's not the right word, but that's where I'm stuck with right now. It's like, has this like ebb and flow energy in it. And you can flow towards divinity by first, as in your book, you also use this language, descending before you ascend and transcend is descend. So you can flow through that process or you can ebb and just get like wiped out. Mm. And so what I feel, part of our issues as a postmodern devotional community also is that we don't have rituals of containment. We don't have rituals, rites of passage of containment Mm. to hold us through the ebbs and flow of the crisis period. And so what's happening to a lot of us is that we're not able to actually, it doesn't matter how much we've heard this message. It's not translating into our minds as an invitation from God, or even a little bit lower, invitation from nature, that it's time to renew, it's time to evolve, it's time to upgrade your interiority. We don't process it like that, and so the result is that we're ebbing, like we're getting wiped <laughs> out by the, dis, the dis, um, disintegrating energies of that space, which is actually, in a sense, positive, but we can't experience it as such because mm. we don't have you know, the containment structures yeah yeah even the poison the color comes to point or it's, it's killing <laughs> us it's wiping us out we're like we're dead <laughs> okay and lakshmi and the moon has not come yet <laughs> and lakshmi and the moon is not coming it's not coming she's staying underneath you know i'm, I'm a and there's no more <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i totally appreciate even i will say we, we don't even have the language to Express, we are the, to express those chapters oh because that's that sounds basic like a language let's try to upgrade our lingo to 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 properly identify what's actually taking place because we always say but that's words just Maharaj. it's just only words no no i mean the words oh. i mean that's a whole podcast separate podcast no <laughs> okay it's a whole separate podcast but can i i want to share something personal yeah this, just on yeah. this language point so I, I left the, I was living in the ashram for about 15 years, 13 and a half to 15 years, more or less 15 years. And um, I left the ashram in a very dynamic way. <laughs> um, I mean, I have, I have a little bit of a big mouth and I could be a little bit confronting. Mm-hmm. And so the authorities at the time, like basically had enough of me. And, um, and honestly, retrospectively speaking, fairly. <laughs> and so I, I got um, kicked out of the ashram. And it was kind of sudden for me. You know, was, you know I was a Brahmacharya for 13 and a half years. And the shift was so sudden that it was traumatizing. Because mm. it was just like the carpet being pulled underneath your feet. And you just, 
you, you, it's like being in a sensory deprivation chamber. Like you just don't know where you're at, who you are, et cetera. Mm. And during, at the very beginning of that period, there was like a lot of resentment. There was a lot of um, anger slash grief. Um, obviously there's fear of what's going to happen to my future. And, and, I, and I was struggling really hard to not like blame the environment. It's like, mm. no, this is God's arrangement and so on, but I just couldn't shake it. And it wasn't until three years later where I read this book called The, um, the Hero with a Thousand Faces by Joseph, Joseph Campbell. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, The Hero with a Thousand Faces is just him trying to articulate how indigenous cultures um, basically did rites of passage. That's actually at the core of his book. And, you know, he says the rite of passage has three stages, the stage of separation, then the stage of initiation, which is like a descending, it's like a circle, it descends. And then the stage of return. That's the, mm -hmm. Those are the three stages of a rite of passage. And he expands those three stages of the rite of passage into what is famously known as the hero's journey, you know, which is basically a journey of individuation. Mm -hmm. And so I read that book, and it wasn't until I read that book that I gathered language to process my experience from three years earlier. And with that language, that language became like a digestive fire. So all the, all the lessons and all the insight that was available in that situation, I wasn't able to digest. So it was almost useless. Hmm. But when I discovered the language, you know, that allowed me to see that this is nature's way of renewal. This is God's call for, you know, invitation to interior upgrade. Suddenly it was like all that unintegrated energy just got, you know, I was able to gather the nutrients of that experience. Hmm. And then I immediately experienced like a release of anger, you know, a release of grief. Um, and I became more courageous to like step forward into the future. And so I'm sorry I'm to go off on that tangent, but you brought it oh, up. Right. I just want to say like, yeah, how important it is just to, to have the language and to have the imagery of that yeah. process gave a digestive fire that allows one to actually process the nutrients of those disintegrating spaces which are ultimately for our ascension and transcendence, as you say in the book. Yeah, thank you for sharing your testimony. And of course, I was hearing your story and I couldn't avoid thinking of my own story. <laughs> and and some, of course, my own story has many chapters like with everyone else's, but in particular what transpired in the last half a year or a little bit more, which was very, in one sense, similar. I was very suddenly put, and not to blame anyone, just however it happened, but I found myself in a very liminal space in a very, in a situation where I had gone through a similar, similar thing before, but it's still, it's still, as you mentioned, as a culture, we don't have this uh, prepared containers and language even to deal, how, what, to know what to do with that, how to deal with that. And I personally, my particular case, <clears throat> as you did with Joseph Campbell, which by the way, the first book I heard something from Krishna was a book from Joseph Campbell, right. interestingly, yeah, the Campbell Kijai. Mm -hmm. uh, but in my particular case, in this stage, I, I found lots of inspiration and, and shelter, I will say, through the, 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 the writing of different Christian mystics who really had a have a lot of language and have a lot of experience into this particular <clears throat> stages that you are mentioning, sorry. <clears throat> So I'm just thinking in parallel times. And when you mentioned the, the hero, the, the, her, the hero's journey of Joseph Campbell, I couldn't avoid also thinking, I remember 
last year, and I was in the midst of, of this situation after a whole month, I, I gave one lecture for Gopastami, mm -hmm. and I was talking about Krishna transitioning from being a calf herder to a cow herder, and I made some parallel with transitions and rites of passages in God's own life, and what to speak in our own. And then there I talked about, again, I, I quoted Joseph Campbell and his archetypal hero's journey when he speaks about in terms of departure, initiation, and return. And there is another author called Arnold Van Gennep, for those who would like to, to study. He's the one who coined the term rites of passage. And he will talk in different, slightly different terms, but similar. He will talk about separation, transition, and incorporation which is another way of saying integration. Mm -hmm. But there's one author that I also like, especially, and I read during this period of, of crisis, so to say, of turning the decisive point, which is, he's called Bill Plotkin, and he's a contemporary author on psychology, and he will speak in, the, the, instead of saying the hero's journey, he will say the descent of the soul, and he will describe this in five stages. So give me a minute, and I would like to share them with you. The first one is preparation, so this is an extra stage to the classical main ones. So it's an extra stage, especially in our disjointed times, as you properly describe postmodern templates. Uh, and that's why it's not included in the older systems, he says. Mm -hmm. no? The older systems were somehow more, they have this language, these rights, these uh, chapters. But in our postmodern time, we don't have that. So we have to add this initial one called Again, preparation. And then comes the second one he will call dissolution, mm. which is basically an unmaking of the social idea of who I am. So deconstructing my, my sense of self, the, the, the thing I, I think I, I am. Then comes the third one, which is soul encounter, which is basically an inner shift of how we see ourselves after the, the original deconstruction. Then comes the fourth he will call about in terms of metamorphosis, so it's a new a new identity emerges <clears throat> in the service of others. He will make that point. And finally, the last stage, the fifth one, he calls it enactment. And, and he basically makes a parallel of enactment with individuation, a participation in life to its fullest degree, even mm. in this particular world. So anyhow, these ideas of these parallels came to my to my mind and <clears throat> And regarding what you were mentioning before, a few words if possible. Again, you mentioned crisis, and we are accustomed to interpret that as a, as a breakdown. But I tried to mention in my book, actually, that's not a breakdown, but it's a breakthrough, making a play of words. But again, we are not trained to read the words in those terms. So the crisis knocks on our door, and we are trained just to how to avoid this, how to solve this, how to solve the problems instead of thinking the problems are here to solve me. <laughs> how to modify the orientation to, to even a short quote, like I have to solve this problem instead of this problem has come to solve me. <laughs> uh, because again, it's entering a new land, a new, a new land of language, a new land of possibilities, a new land of potential, which is unknown. And again, generally we are, terrified with the unknown. We have not been too much trained to coexist with uncertainty. And I always love Richard Rowe will say, the opposite of faith is, is certainty, he will say. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no? mm -hmm. Uncertainty is synonymous with faith. Now, faith implies coexisting with a certain level, at least, of uncertainty, of unknowing, and being okay with that, understanding that the actual 
epiphanies of life will happen outside of the comfort zone, basically. Mm. But, but yeah, I totally agree with your point that we as a culture are not only limited, of course, to the Gaudiya community, but in general, in our postmodern times, we, we need to reemphasize this idea of <clears throat> okay, what I call in my book, descent religion, instead of just trying to ascend and transcend First, we need to descend, be grounded, and go deep into the things that probably we don't want to see. What again, Karyun will call shadow work. No, you have to deal with your shadow, with that part of you that you don't want to see, but you need to. And many of these, yeah, some scars or rites of passage that you talked about, I think it will be very healthy for them to be reinstated, reestablished, reformulated. But again, a corresponding language has to be in place as well for us to to process and understand not only what those rights are, but again, what are the what I'm going through in my inner life as a sadhak as well. <clears throat> I have I have a lot to say in response to this. <laughs> I, yeah. Sorry for I, triggering an overdose of not overdose. Um, that idea brainstorming, Kijai. <laughs> I, I want to get. I, I was I, you know I have here in my notes. Um, maybe a Gaudiya way of conceiving individuation in terms of like the Sadak Deha, Siddha Deha, and even more fundamentally than that, which you've spoken of in your book, like our, our, our own quote unquote material nature, our Swapava and the Swadharma that is congruent with that Swapava. That's like, like, that's like the most basic level of individuation that appears to have been neglected and our postmodern devotional communities uh, we deny our material nature and try to like fit ourselves into, you know, other archetypes that may not be suitable for mm -hmm. our self, like on the most basic <clears throat> level. And then, but above that, you have like sadaka deha and like the unfolding of the the sadaka ego. Even um, this descent of the soul paradigm is like fabulous. And then, of course, like the siddha deha, like what is our ultimate ideal in devotion? Um, recently, I was assisting a retreat in Govardhan, and I was asked to speak at it. <clears throat> and I asked the audience devotees, what is your goal of life? And then I said, don't say Krishna Prema. That's the goal of life. What is your goal in life? And when I asked it, and I, I asked it forcefully to try to create impact, and almost everyone in the audience looked utterly bewildered. They were just like, they were like, I never, like, they was like, I never thought about it, you know, outside of getting the idea of Krishna mm. Prima. And, and so many of those devotees, they came up to me and like, we wanted to like churn it, like churn the topic a little bit more and talk yeah. about it. <clears throat> so what is our ultimate idea? That's like part of the process of individual, individuation, like our, you know, upper world notion of self. And then you have like the Sadak Deha, but then even more fundamental, like our, our nature and our, Swadharma, like our vocation in this world, that's yeah. congruent with that. And you speak a lot of a lot to that in the book. But before we, I jump into that. Really, I really want to say about this ritual point. This what you were talking about just now. I recently read this book called. Um, it was called. Oh my God! What was the one it? related to death, right? Yeah, it was called. Yeah, I don't remember the name, but you you asked me if I have read it. Because the author sounded, oh my God, why can't I think? Yeah, The Wild Edge of Sorrow. Mm. And the tagline of the book was Rituals of Renewal and Sacred mm. Grief Work. Mm. Um, I stumbled upon the book somehow or other. Anyway, in that book, he speaks a lot of, 
to us. He speaks a lot about like rediscovering ritual, mm. rediscovering rites of passage. In other words, through the great passing of time, Sakala Neha Mahata, Yoga Nashta. Right. Of course, Yoga Nashta in context means karma yoga. Yoga Nashta means the teachings of Parampara. Um, and Yoga Nashta, I, you know, I'm taking it here to also mean like ancestral wisdom that was passed down generation to generation. Due to the great passing of time, all of it is lost. Mm. And so in the book, he kind of gives an encouragement for individual people or individual communities to rediscover rites and rituals that work. Like, in other words, just to your, the topic of this podcast, like crafting something that works. So I just wanted to share a recent experience, experiment with this. Um, I was sharing before the podcast began. I just did a retreat upstate. And my particular topic was prayer as a response to the collapse of faith. And again, collapse of faith was taken as a positive, not as a negative. Collapse of faith was the invitation from God or the invitation from nature for interior upgrade. Um, the experience of that collapse, of course, is disconcerting, it's bewildering, but with the reframe that it's an invitation from God who's hiding inside the darkness of the collapse of faith, um, how do we respond to that? We can respond by prayer. So in order to create an imagery of this process, I took the Rasa Lila because that's, that's the main Lila, that's the Lila that's gonna save the world. Mm -hmm. So in that Lila, you know, Krishna hides himself from all the gopis and he's hiding in the darkness. Um, and his color is also dark. So, you know, at one point in the, in the He's gonna, he's gonna shout. He's a dark he's, cloud, cloud of dark, un, cloud yeah. of unknowing. That's this Christian book, right? That's very clever. Yes, yeah. uh, cloud of unknowing. So we, I said, when we're in that experience of the dark, we can imagine it. We can even experience it as God's embrace, you know, mm -hmm. asking us to upgrade. So with that imagery of God's hiding Himself in darkness from the gopis, how did the gopis respond to His hiddenness? You know, that now they're feeling grief, they're feeling despair. And this is not just to translate it into mundane terms. I, I'll just throw it out there right now, just so people know that I'm still trying to be a Gaudiya Vaishnava, that I understand the ontological distinction between what's going on in the spiritual world, what's happening here. At the same time, the pastimes speak on all sorts of levels because it's the, it's the foundational reality. So being the foundational reality, it can speak to us psychologically, it can speak to us sociologically, it can speak to us, of course, ontologically as well. So anyway, I was using this, the image of the Rasulila of God's hiding himself to give us, to give our heart the opportunity to expand, which is what's actually taking place in the Lila. But so the way that the gopis do that is that they begin to sing forth their prayers to the dark, you know? to be witnessed by each other. Mm -hmm. uh, and I guess the sense is they know that Krishna is somewhere. He must be hiding, he must be there. And if he hears our songs of sorrow, our songs of grief, then he'll respond to us by reappearing before us. So that's the beginning of the 32nd chapter of the 10th um, canto. Iti gopya praghayanta pradapanta shachitrada. So not only did they sing forth their song of sorrow to the dark, but they also spoke forth in colorful language to each other, the nature of their heart. And they began to cry um, 
a lot, <laughs> copious amount of tears. Krishna Darshan Lalasa, because of their longing for Krishna Darshan. So with that as the imagery um, of the topic, the, the day after we decided to do a ritual, it was totally experimental. And the, the ritual was we sat in a circle, as I kind of imagine the gopis to be when they're singing their songs of grief, we sat in a circle and we began to just sing forth our own personal prayer to God, but to be witnessed by all the well-wishers who were in the room. There was like a fear that we didn't have enough time for the mycelial threads of our hearts to be connected, but it was like, guys, let's just, let's just take a risk, let's just try it. So we tried it and the sort of things that came up was, it was like kind of spooky, but like in a good sense, you know, it, like the, the level of like emotional revelation and divulgence of secret things that, you know, some people in the circles, like, I haven't told anyone this, I don't tell people this sort of stuff, mm. but it was like, and part of the, the most mystical part of that exper experiment and experience was the silence in between prayers. Hmm. You know, because we would say our prayers and it was like there would be silence because we wanted to know if the person was finished, especially because there was it was a lot of emotions. So sometimes, you know, you didn't know if they were just like crying for a second before they continued. So there would be like this. And I, I describe it like delicious. Like it was like this delicious silence. And then right when you thought it was over, someone else would speak forth their prayer. It was, so it was our ritual. It was kind of like our speaking forth our songs of sorrow to Krishna. It was mm -hmm. a prayer to Krishna, but to be seen by all the well-wishers, you know, like the gopikas. And it was just like, for me, it was like a powerful example of an experiment of like descent work. Mm -hmm. um, it was definitely descent work because it was, it was like, it was so vulnerable and disintegrating to be like sharing like private things that you don't say. But it's also cathartic to know that you know, I'm speaking forth my song to God and that it's being held by this container of mm. this sacred space. Um, yeah, I just wanted to share that because you were bringing mm. about this point of rite of passage in relationship to the descent of the soul and different stages of it. I was inspired to say that. I wanted to share that. Yeah, beautiful. Beautiful. And, and, and that shows how, I mean, even though as you may consider what you did as experimental, you immediately saw which was the result of that, how much need there was for such a, space uh, for expressing things in, in, in that particular ritualistic way. So as experimental as you may, someone may think that was, that was completely necessary and effective. So, so I, I really appreciate that and many of the points you mentioned, of course, you know, like I remember you, you started mentioning something of the, your talk on that retreat had to do with prayer and the collapse of faith. And again, Again, we have to over and over again, and maybe we have to pound this post many times, but we have to get a custom collapse. It's not a bad word. Crisis is not a bad word. And in one sense, faith is meant to collapse, but not to collapse in the sense that you lose faith. Right. But the current way you used to conceive of faith needs to collapse for an upgraded version of it to come. And as you mentioned, you asked the devotees uh, certain questions about, okay, what's your goal of life? And they were bemohan, they were bewildered. But that bewilderment opened the door for an upgrading. Like I, it reminds me of Brahma Vimohan Lila, where he starts by being totally bewildered and, and, and being too much addicted to certainty because he thought, I know who Krishna is. Mm -hmm. I saw Krishna, and suddenly he sees 
someone else in the picnic and he thinks, no, this is not Krishna. I know who Krishna is. So that idea of Krishna needs to collapse. And Krishna will accordingly for that to happen. And as we know, Brahma's foreheads are spinning like crazy. But that takes him to have an upgraded darshan. I mean, he has this incredible darshan, an upgraded uh, conception of who Krishna actually is. So yeah, collapse is bringing uh, upgrade and and for that to happen, sometimes, yeah, Krishna may need to to take an, a new shape to disappear, as you mentioned, in the darkness. He's darkness personified, as I actually write in my book. I mean, he's Ganesha, he's darkness personified. The better you <laughs> deal with darkness nicely, because he is darkness. And, and it recalls, reminds me this, <clears throat> the words of Thomas Keating. He's a, one of Christian mystics I like a lot. And he will say, sometimes in our life of prayer, we will experience that God has is no longer present, that he has disappeared. Uh, and actually he says, it's not that he disappeared, but it's just he's getting closer to you. His intimacy and proximity has been upgraded. But since you are not accustomed to that level of proximity, you think he disappeared. Because you tend to think of him the usual way you conceive of God, you feel God. And when he takes a different stance closer to you, Sometimes you cannot conceive, oh, he's getting closer. You get bewildered and think he's getting far away. He's disappeared totally. So it's important for us to have these conceptual tools to understand. No, no, he's not getting far away. He's just taking a new shape, a more intimate one. Mm. But I'm so attached to him being whatever way he is that he's now in a more upgraded form, but I cannot see him. He's not mm. disappeared. <laughs> so I appreciate what you mentioned in in relation to the Rasa Lila, I'm not sure if you read that part of my book yet, but it's especially if, if you have not read that, I'm happy that, that you are reaching these similar conclusions that I, I, I reach on my own, so to say by Krishna's grace, of course, that, yeah, Rasa Lila has a lot to do with this. Krishna's inviting the gopis for, for Rasa, for dancing, but he's feeling still it needs to be more upgraded, so he disappears. He creates a further layer of mystery. Mm. And the gopis, of course, as you mentioned, respond accordingly, embrace that mystery in prayer and invites Krishna to return in an upgraded version. Mm -hmm. He appears in a very he's pierced more attractive than ever before and that we could say that's before because of the gopis prayer that invites him to reappear in yet deeper form, more beautiful form. And eventually, as you know, the Ras, we know the Rasalila attains a zenith. But before that zenith, it, there has to be so many layers of integration, of complexity, and, and further individuation, and further... Anyhow. And the, the Lila is speaking on all these levels. I also talked about that in my series. Lila is not just the esoteric meaning of that, but you can reach to the... A meaning that applies to us as individuals, wherever we are. Uh, so... Yeah, just some reflections of what you mentioned, and especially I like what you mentioned at the end, <laughs> the emphasis you made on the silence that was between prayers and, and the importance of silence, which again is something that sometimes we Godias may uh, underestimate or, or even criticize, like silences, whatever. We have to speak about Krishna, we have to do kirtan, silences, maya, but actually whatever Krishna says in the Gita, of all secrets, I'm silence. And he describes... In the Gita also, Bhakti is Raja Guhyam. Bhakti is the king of all secrets. And then he says, and of all secrets, I'm silence. So 
you have to establish some connection between bhakti and silence. No, and silence, of course, is not just not speaking, but is especially I will say listening is an act of silence. No, mm. Silence doesn't mean so much don't speak, but rather hear hear attentively. Mm. No? I, I recall that Srila Prabhupada <clears throat> in in the Bhagavatam, in one comment in the Bhagavatam, uh, no, in the Bhagavatam, no, in the Bhagavad Gita, to this verse where Krishna says, among all circuits and silence, which is Gita 10.38, Prabhupada says that among the confidential activities of hearing, thinking and meditating, silence is most important because by silence one can make progress very quickly. <laughs> and, and there are other quotes I won't torture you with that, but in the Bhagavatam... Well, that explains my slow progress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in the Bhagavatam, Bhagavan himself is saying, I'm worshipped by silence. So anyhow, the importance of, yeah, of those particular moments when we are actually hearing, it's not that nothing is happening, but, but yeah, something has to be gone. Let, let me share one comment, just since the idea was to share a few comments also in connection mm -hmm. to what we are talking about. So we are talking about faithless collapse, something that, of course, we are talking about the particular type of collapse. Like, for example, Rinda Sundari is saying faith is meant to collapse, or rather the unsustainable false parts of faith need to fall away. Yeah, probably they are not false parts. Maybe it's just a real genuine faith, but that is no longer enough, so to say. We are ready for something else. Mm -hmm. So I also would like to make that point clear because sometimes when we say something needs to collapse, it doesn't mean that it was fake, that it was bad. A certain structure, even like I put on the conclusion of my book, we are seeing certain landscape in the Gaudiya community. And maybe, maybe, I mean, we are trying to solve and to address and to heal, but maybe some of those structures need to collapse, need to die and be reborn. No, it's not that there's no rebirth after death. <laughs> but even if that has to happen, it doesn't mean that those things that need to die were bad ontologically speaking, so to say. Just they reached their, their contribution, the point of contribution. <laughs> mm. And then they need to re be reborn in a new form, in a new shape, in a new version to continue contributing to the cause. No? So, mm. so I, I would like to emphasize that. And this is even in terms of faith. No, I mean, you can have a level of faith and that's beautiful and that's great, but eventually it's not enough. So, mm. so it, it was not bad. Like I, I give the example sometimes, like in the beginning of our practice, one has this Utsamai and you go through this honeymoon of bhakti <laughs> and that's beautiful. Honeymoon is beautiful, but your whole marriage won't be a honeymoon. You need to be ready for what comes after the honeymoon and go to the descent work and the struggle and the integration of complexity. And that will make the honeymoon give further meaning to that. If not, it's like if I tell my mom, mom, you were changing my diapers when I was a kid. It was so beautiful. Let's return to that honeymoon of Batsalia. And she will say, no, no. Because it was beautiful, now we have to prepare to an even more beautiful thing. So it's always evolving, as you mentioned. We have to, to understand that spiritual life is always like the rhythm of nature. Is there, I mean, the rhythm of nature reflects the rhythm of God's own heart, which is always evolving, always unfolding. So we are, as I put in my book, to keep the, the pace with transcendence. No? Mm -hmm. That basically means to individuate ourselves, keeping the pace of transcendence, which is ever evolving and folding. And in individuation is basically all about that. Yeah. We have many powerful 
oh, we have imagery from the Bhagavatam, like Narna Muni in his past life. We have Bharat Maharaj becoming a literal deer. So that's descent work for you. You have Chitraketu becoming a literal demon. Uh, and then you have the Rasalila and all of these, these um, archetypes um, and the, well, in all these stories, the Bhagavatam, the same message is given almost for all these stories, almost the same cult from the Rasalila is also given where Krishna, in order to allow someone to find their voice, so to speak, or for them to expand their love. You know, the way that Acharyas speak about it is that in order for Prema to reach maturity from a state of like infancy to a state of maturity, that's only possible by separation. And so Krishna will create a situation of separation where the devotee feels forlorn, feels forgotten. Uh, and in that longing for the Lord, then that causes the expansion of their love to maturity. So these examples are given. Narada Muni, Bharat Maharaj, Chittiketu, Minkarsu, Vivitrasura. And then, of course, the gopis of Vrindavan. So, it's, yeah, it's like a sense of understanding how... Again, a sense of understanding how God plays. Yeah, the rules of the game. The rules of the game, so to speak, and then our ability to respond to that. Um, but we thought it was going to be a lot more fun than it feels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but again, as you mentioned, that's an very important point that Lila literally is translated as play, and our eternal prospect is eternal play, but any play, any game has its rules. So right. if it doesn't feel exciting for us now, probably it's because we are not following the rules. I mean, we, we, we started following the rules and someone said, but Maras, I'm following the four regs, I'm chanting my 16 rounds, I'm following the rules. But that's not the only type of rules we are to follow. Those are the very initial ones, which are okay, but they are meant to take us to way more... Uh, tricky rules, so to say, that you have to follow in a very intuitive way. You have to really develop certain criterion and certain like perception. Okay, what does Krishna want from me now? <laughs> and, and, and how to, to follow the call of his fruit, so to say. But yeah, I, I, I appreciate your point on, on separation, which I, in my book, I mentioned that as a parallel to the dark night of the soul. No, like there's darkness, eventually sun comes, but the darkness implies some yeah, separation increases the joy of union and, and it's a constant repeated process mm. of rediscovery, of, of re, 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 discovering a new Krishna at every single moment, basically, and discovering a new version of ourselves. I, I'd like to touch upon what you mentioned before, if you allow me, Jay Jagannath, on, on you described this the idea of Swadharma as vocation, which I really appreciated because it's, it's a very, because we can say one's own nature, but actually it has to do with, with vocation and in the context of individuation and the idea of going to the title of today's episode of having our own experience of bhakti in the sense of, again, bhakti is unfolding unto us, but also we are units of experience, so to say. We are individuals who have the capacity to have an experience. So how to have the experience, how to choose to have an experience. I really like what Krishna says in the Gita, second verse of ninth chapter, and he says, Pratyaksha Bhagavan. Mm -hmm. Now that bhakti is understood by Pratyaksha, which means personal experience, basically direct experience. And with this, we are not downplaying Shabda Praman, but just you go, you experience Shabda Praman through Pratyaksha, through your own personal 
filter, so to say. And, and something more interesting is that in, in, in one comment of the Brihad Bhagavatamrita that I quote in my book, Sanatana Goswami says that of all forms of Praman, Pratyaksha is the highest, mm -hmm. interestingly. No? So he emphasizes the, again, not dismissing revelation, but the point that you will have an experience of revelation through your own experience. There's no, there's no experience of revelation without protection. So making a, a big point, a big case for, <clears throat> I mean, we are individual beings with our own experiences that we have. And Krishna wants us to have our own experience of bhakti. Uh, there is a nice comment that Brinda Sundari made before. Let me share it. She says, Individuality, uniqueness, is what makes each living entity relishable for Krishna. And one's own individuality is the gift to oneself as well, to experience Krishna's cherishing that individuality is a gift, and to have an experience of individuality is a gift. So it reminds me this verse from the Bhagavatam that I had here with me to quote with you, just if you would like to share a few words about that, which comes from the, in the Uddhav Gita, Krishna saying, whatever is most desired by one within this material world, or whatever is most dear to oneself, one should offer that very thing to me. Such an offering qualifies one for eternal life. So that's an interesting verse where Krishna is emphasizing offering what is more dear to you, like have your own taste, and that will give you adhikar or qualification for eternal life, the type of eternality we're after. What do you think about that, Jajagana? Yeah, what's coming up for me hearing all these statements and hearing you speak um, is, <clears throat> I don't know if this is like a general social melee, but basically the society has nourished a bunch of children. No, a whole book was written about that also. Lord of the Flies, I think it was called. I remember having to read that book in high school, hated it because I didn't understand it. But later on, I think, it'd be, I think part of the import of that book is that our psyches have been kind of like infantilized. Like we haven't really stepped into adult um, psychology basically. And so one of the ways that's translated into real time is that we don't have a lot of self-trust. Like we don't trust our own experiences and the way that we hear philosophy, um, Gaudius philosophy also is that we never should. <laughs> That doesn't mean that's exactly what's preached, but there's a sense of like, we can never trust our own experience because mm. we're conditioned souls. And therefore our vision of things is necessarily conditioned. And you know, there's truth to that. It may not be the full truth, but it's true to that. But sometimes half truths can be more dangerous than a straight out lie because there's some truth element in it that's not complete though. But anyway, I feel like the sin, because of having grown up in a society that nourishes child psychology, and I think the methods in which a lot of our communities have maybe preached to us also nourishes like a sort of, I wouldn't even say codependence at best, if not like a complete transfer of responsibility to our gurus and our acharyas, our mentors or whatever, like a complete transfer of responsibility for unfolding involvement to them the result is we have like no self-trust. And, mm -hmm. and so we need confirmation for like every little thing in order to feel that we're properly oriented toward the reality. And my mind was going to, okay, my thing is about to die. I just realized I'm gonna have to adjust here, but I was remembering um, 
I think Prabhupada was probably asked on more than one occasion, but I'm remembering one time when Prabhupada was asked, how do I know that I'm making advancement? And Prabhupada responded by saying, how do you know when you're full, when you're eating? You know by direct perception. And then he quoted the verse, bhakti you know, by direct perception, you can understand. Just like someone who's eating grains can understand that they're satisfied and that they're nourished and that they're free from hunger. So in the same way, by devotion, by experience of God and by detachment from matter, by direct perception, you can understand. Mm -hmm. um, you can understand if you're developing in spirituality. But there's like this lack of trust in our own experience of things. Even to the point where like something bad is going on or forget the air code something actually bad is happening and you don't even trust your eyes you like explain it away by saying well you know even park ship Maharaj appear to transgress social things and so that like you don't even trust your own eyes it's gotten like that serious that even something that maybe even flagrantly a transgression you can like explain it away through philosophy and mm. And so, I don't know, for me, it seems like there's a lack of self-trust. And that lack of self-trust is also disaligning us from individuating. Sorry, I'm just having to charge this. Yeah, no problem. Um, apologies, I thought I had charged it properly. Okay, I don't know if you wanted to respond to that. I'm just going to set up my little table here. Yeah, yeah, well, I'll share a few words. Very interesting. Thank you. <laughs> Just in case the camera went out, Jagannath, for you. <laughs> whenever you return, yeah. So, yeah, that reminds me of something that is generally mentioned in different traditions, which is that God has no grandchildren. God only has children. Of course, the same point. Of course, we are not only to remain children, but adults, elders. But the point is, God has no grandchildren, so do not remain as a grandchildren to God. You have to mature. You have to trust uh, your own experience because uh, if not we can yes you very beautifully say transfer of responsibility okay. we can we can end up using the external form of surrender to avoid actual surrender for example we can we can understand surrender as just i give myself to my guru and he will decide for me think for me feel for me tell me what to do tell me what not to do and again there is a place for that in the kindergarten stage but there is a place for that when the guru will say think for yourself as Prabhupada will say i want in the independent thoughtful people as my disciples so i was thinking also the very definition of sharanagati or surrender which is again a very crucial term for us godias but also as with any crucial term sometimes very misunderstood sometimes the beginning of sharanagati is particularly to accept what's favorable for bhakti and to reject what's not favorable for bhakti, but, but also sometimes we limit that to whatever is favorable, what's favorable for, for, for my bhakti in this stage. It's not only favorable for bhaktis to chant rounds to do yes, but what's favorable for bhakti for me in bhakti in this particular stage, which may not be favorable in another stage. So that's also this type of nuance criterion is necessary. It's not the Okay, give me the anukul list and the practical list and I will do whatever I have to do. I will avoid doing what I don't have to do and that's it. No, that list will maybe in time 
upgrade. What is favorable today is no longer favorable. What is not favorable today will be favorable eventually. And, and my point with this is, again, Saranaga, what's favorable for me in many stages, at least, or at least in some stages, I have to trust my experience. I have to be an individual. I have to be a person. And that's Saranagati. A deeper way of Saranagati is trust your own experience in Bhakti. Trust Bhakti. Trust Bhakti is unfolding in your life and what you are witnessing undeniably, as you mentioned. You have Pratyaksha. You have a very undeniable experience. So, I mean, at the end of the day, it all boils down to Pratyaksha because even if someone tells me, I, I, no, that, I do not agree. I agree that the ultimate thing is hearing from the pure devotee, from my guru who is a pure devotee. That's the ultimate thing. And I will ask, but how do you know your guru is a pure devotee? And eventually it will all boil down to, I have a certain experience with that person that makes me feel that he is a pure devotee, which is great. But it, it's boiled down to your own experience of the whole thing. So what the problem is, if you don't trust if everything boils down to your own experience and you don't trust your own experience, then we have a very big problem here. <laughs> yeah. Because the, the ultimate foundation of whatever you experience is your own experience. So if you don't trust that, I mean, you are in a limbo. You are in, a, in, in nowhere, basically. That's a very yeah. delicate place to be. And, and that can lead to neurosis. That can lead to not only discouragement, but neurosis and and. and, and and lots of crises that we should avoid, not the healthy ones. So to say. I would like to nuance that a little bit also by saying that, okay, there was this ex, there was this experience of mine some years ago where I asked a particular sannyasi guru that I admire it, um, at a particular program. Uh, I quoted the verse, Evam Vratta Swapriya Namakirtya. Now, this verse is a, it's one of the Siddhanta verses that Ishwar Puri, when speaking to Mahaprabhu, said this is the essence of the Shema Bhagavatam. Jiva Goswami uses this verse to unpack his explanation of Kirtan in the Bhakti Sandarbha. Um, and in the context of the Bhagavatam, is speaking about specifically how someone attains prema, jata nuraga, jrita chitta ucha, where the heart melts. Yeah. And it says that, well, first of all, you attain by hearing and singing without inhibition the names of your Lord. That's the previous verse. So Avan Vretta being thus fixed in the vow to just like wander around and sing and the songs of your Lord without inhibition, but specifically through the names, you know, Kirtya, through the names that are dear to oneself. That is specifically how Prima will come. So Nam Sankirtan, Nam Kirtan, but of the names that are dear to your heart. So I asked this Guru Sanyasi, this is many years ago, I said, what does this mean? Swa Priya Nama. Like, what does mm. it mean? And he said, Swa Priya Nama. <laughs> this is very characteristic of this personality. So I wasn't surprised by the answer, though I was disappointed. He said, the name that is dear to one's heart is a name that is given by the guru. Mm. And then he chanted, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna, Krishna. <laughs> now, again, that was like a very, like, almost you can't even be surprised if that was the answer that came. But um, I was like, but what if I like other names, <laughs> you know, like my heart feels attracted, you know, well, then that's not bona fide. There was sort of that spirit in the room. So we weren't really even allowed to question further. Or at least there was a feeling that you weren't allowed to question further without you being mm. considered like recalcitrant and, you know, ultimately against the Acharya or whatever. So this is, again, back to the point where like how a child receives instruction. 
and how an adult receives instructions is probably it's going to be very different. So mm-hmm. when we come into our spiritual life, we don't know anything. So we are like children and we just want to, we want our own experience to be validated and confirmed by the adults in the room where there's a sense in me now that as one gets grows up and you become an adult, spiritually speaking, you may have joined when you were, you know, 50, you're still a child, but if you're around for some time and you're serious and you're starting to mature, then I, the dynamic between you and instructions and between you and those who give instructions like Shastra, Sadhu and Guru mm. also seems the need to mature. And I want to, this is going to come off probably as heterodoxy. I don't know. I would probably need more time to develop my idea, but this is more like a collaborative approach between adults, like a dialectic and a more collaborative approach mm-hmm. where you can trust your own experience or your absence thereof. And then you can share that with your mentor, your guru, your the sadhu, and kind of like collaborate. And so that you may have a more holistic um, unfolding of your experience. You know, I'm thinking about Kino Thakur and his, his um, explanation of Rod Bhajan in both Jaiva Dharma and also in the Harinam Chintamani, you know, Shavana Dasha, Varana Dasha, Smarana Dasha, Parana Dasha, these different stages. Mm-hmm. He seems to encourage a more collaborative approach between guru and disciple that was probably in his time considered like heterodoxy by the, the traditionalists, where basically you got Siddhapanali Diksha and you were given an identity, essentially. Whereas Bhakti Thakur and both Harinam Chintami and Jai <clears throat> indicate like a more collaborative approach. Mm-hmm. Now, whether that's, you know, there's like a theological part of that conversation. I'm leaving that out of the window. I'm just kind of thinking practically here. Um, just like the idea of like what it means to be an adult practicing spiritual life, then what it means as a contra, contra, in contradistinction with what it means to be a child practicing spiritual life. And I just feel like a part of the challenge for us individuating, coming back to the fear point, is that we're afraid to grow up mm-hmm. in our spiritual life and be adults and like make our own mistakes, you know, experience the grief of feeling like duped or cheated or, you know, having gone the wrong direction and like the horror of that and needing to reacclimate and recalibrate and readjust. But there's like a fear of that. And so as a because of that fear, we're just transferring all the responsibility of our growth to our gurus and our and the, and then when they can't deliver in the name of faith, in, in the, the name, name of faith, right? how glorious faith. they are and, and how dependent surrender I am to them and so on. So and, and then when they're not able to so-called deliver, they are delivering. They're doing their part of the formula. They're doing their adult responsibility in that relationship, but we're not doing ours and we're yeah. transferring it. And the result is it looks like we're coming out disappointed. We're becoming out faithless or whatever. You know, there was this recent <laughs> travesty, I guess, with the Dalai Lama and the whole suck my tongue thing. I can't with that. This is out of control. I couldn't believe like he did that on <laughs> television where everyone can see. And then I was thinking like, oh, maybe it was a cultural thing, but then he came out and apologized for it. Mm. You know, and it's like this whole segment of people just totally devastated. He was like a symbol of virtue and religious outstandingness, whatever. And it occurred to me that time, like, well, probably part of the, the depth of that impact is that people probably largely unconsciously transfer all the responsibility of their deliverance 
to these great apotheosized leaders like the Dalai Lama or in our case, our gurus. And we just are like children. We don't take enough responsibility for our own experience, for our own development. A really good example in, in my sanghas that I've heard is that just hang on to the Dodi of Prabhupada. You're going back home, back to Godhead. And everyone's like, Haribo, Jai. And I'm like, I've, I heard this at a space where there were many Prabhupada disciples. And I immediately protest. I was a young devotee, younger devotee. Yeah, yeah. you told but me that I, one. But tell, yeah, tell I, for the audience. Yeah, I immediately protest. I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I was like, all this talk about attaining Nishta and Ruchi and Asati and Bob and Like, what about all that talk? Prabhupada has given it. You know, Srila Bhakti Siddhanta, Thakur Bhakti, you know, like they're all speaking like this. But if all I have to do is hang on to Prabhupada's Dodi, and I don't even know what that means, but if that's <laughs> all I have to do to attain Godhead, why all this other talk? What if he's wearing a Gamsha that day? You have to reach higher to wear <laughs> the Gamsha. Then you're a little bit you're in trouble there. <laughs> so it's like these sorts of messages, which I think they work really well when you have a certain simplicity to you i would say a certain child psychology and when i say child psychology i don't mean that's a negative thing like we all have our humble beginnings yeah but then at what point do we take up our share of responsible work or in your play of words response ability mm -hmm. our ability to respond to what's happening within us and what's happening without us as arranged by the supreme lord at what point do we accept our share of responsibility and our own development and deliverance. And this seems to be a, a big feature of the process of individual. We didn't even get to talk about like Gaudiya individuation, which would have been, I think, a good part. But I think these are really important elements that are causing resistance to uh, a fuller self, mm -hmm. even empirically, what to speak then of, you know, trans empirically. Um, yeah, so I wanted to nuance that. One final piece of this, that means our, our way of conceiving and relating to guru may have to undergo some, not undergo, but uh, have some more parts to it. You know, not just the reverential part, which is a natural part that comes with all of us, um, but then it may need other elements to it, like the ability to collaborate, the ability to have a dialectic, which means, unless we're like the self-effulgent acharya, where it's like, this is Mahabhagala, we accept. Like, unless it's that, then the culture of like gurus taking more responsibility for their disciples so there could be more conversation. You know, if there needs to be an upgrade in mind, what's favorable and what's unfavorable, I need to like be able to talk that out with someone that's available to me and who in whom I have faith that they have the wisdom, the enlightenment, even if they're not Mahabhagavas, but they're further along than me mm -hmm. to deliver that to me like there might need to be some extra pieces to that relationship also yeah anyway i've said a lot sorry <laughs> no great great i appreciate that you went to the direction of the guru disciple relationship because i mean there's a lot of that plays out in terms of individuation in that particular interaction and and i totally agree with what you mentioned jajagan especially the point of how afraid we are to to grow up and, and how sometimes in the name of to cover up our terror of becoming elders with all the, again, becoming an elder is messy and it's complex and you have to integrate lots of stuff. So of course it's way more easy. Easier, easier to blame. Yeah, yeah. 
So, but and you embrace nostalgia and you over glorify the Purbacharyas and all that. You may convince yourself, I'm like, I have such a guru nishta, but actually, maybe you are just using all that as a device of evasiveness to not uh, take full responsibility and become the adult you are supposed to be because that's that's parampara. Parampara, as you mentioned, is a collaborative uh, work, it's a teamwork between guru and disciple. It's not just Gurus, you, oh, Gurudev, you are so great that you will do everything for yourself. I don't need to do anything. You will take all responsibility. I don't need to take anything. You will think, feel, will for me. That's my surrender. That's your greatness. And again, that can be expressed in kindergarten chapter, but, and, and it's okay that that chapter is allowed for those who are in that chapter. <laughs> but also it's important to give the different templates for the other people in the other chapters. Because if for me, that's one of the definitions of being a sahaja. Sahaja is not only I'm rushing towards someone somewhere that I'm not prepared for, but also is I'm resisting to enter a chapter that I'm ready for. That's mm -hmm. another variety of being an easy, embracing person, embrace, embracing fast, yeah, things too easy, being too easy. So for me, yeah, guru, disciple, let me share one word from the book because I, I had it with me here and you mentioned something in that connection. It says, in the Gita, chapter 18, verse 63, the Gita employs the word ashashena, which means endlessly, to depict how comprehensive the disciple's inquiry and corresponding vulnerability should be, endlessly. Ideally, the guru is to recognize what stage or state the disciple is operating from. From there, she will reflect back to them an understanding of this and then help her students relate in a healthy way to that unfolding of their hearts. In fact, a guru is someone who listens with her students to what God is asking them to do, and not someone who merely tells them what to do. Which I think is an important point regarding this collaborative, collaborative dynamic. It's not just, Gurudev, tell me what to do, and the guru enters also into that role. Again, in some stages that may be required. In other stages, the guru may not say anything, it's just he will ask, what do you think? What do you feel? Or what are you going through internally? Let me hear that and let's together work on that. Let's listen what Krishna is revealing in your heart. It's not that this is it. It's a teamwork basically. So I think, as, as you mentioned in our particular chapter of the tradition, we at least in my opinion and in yours as well, there may be a need to adjust some of those details and, and, and conceive and present the guru-disciple relationship in more, uh, yeah, not, not necessarily in a, limited to a vertical Aishvarya relationship, so to say pyramidal, hierarchical structure of power, but also more like a circular collaboration with both guru and disciple are trying to serve the same common ideal. The both of them are servants of this higher goal, so it's more of a circular collaboration, still there is the hierarchy and three gurus above our heads, but also there's this circular spirals, uh, dynamics in which both of them are working together as a team, collaborating for the sake of this ideal they are serving. So I think that's very important. That requires lots of individuation, not only for from the disciple to think for him or herself, but from the guru to allow that to happen, allow that unfolding of the disciples' individuations and and himself or herself had adjusting to that and serve that unfolding of the disciples' individuation. Again, that, that's hard work. That takes time. 
<laughs> yeah, I like it to. Time. Uh, and, yeah. and I can, sorry, and I can think why, if, if that takes so much time, and I can understand why Rupa Goswami sometimes says, as a guru, do not accept more disciples that you can handle with. Right. Implying there is an investment of time and energy in accompanying the student in, in those nuanced scenarios. So it takes time. Yeah, I wanted to just, you know, throw it out there that I already mentioned it, but when some, if someone's like this self-evident Acharya, you know, they descended from wherever and, you know, it's like self-evident, they are able to inspire a sort of faith in their constituency, you know, fantastic. I really have no comment about that sort of relationship. Yeah. I have zero comments about that. Um, Srila Bhakti Siddhanta in his essay, called Initiation into Spiritual Life. He said that the true guru and the true disciple are both denizens of the spiritual world. Well, and so- Jajan, you continue, I go to plug also. I have to do my own part, those of plugging the computer, but you continue talking. Yeah, he, so Shri Bhakti Siddhanta, he's making this point that both the disciple, the guru and the disciple are both denizens of the spiritual world, of the spirituality. But he says that that relationship can also be realized in the material world. Otherwise, there would be no possibility of the religious life whatsoever in this world. So my comment about collaborative discussion with Guru Disciple has nothing to do with that primordial devotional archetype of the Guru and the Disciple who are both denizens in the spiritual world. You know, that spiritual reality, again, that's, we are to be handled by that reality. It's above us. We are to supplicate and offer our devotions to them, whatever. Um, and if someone is really self-evidently that for us as an individual, that I, I think it also is a sort of natural, and there's a natural reverence and a natural way that is revealed to one of how to act in that particular dynamic. But my particular comment is in relationship to the ongoing tradition, like generation after generation after generation. Um, it's probably the case that not every guru and every disciple is going to be a denizen of the spiritual world. But if that religious relationship or, yeah, archetypal relationship can be realized now, that means someone's going to have to be fill, filling the role of guru and filling the role of disciple in order for the tradition to continue to have its voice in this world until, by the, God's mercy, there's his avatar or a descent some Shaktivesh avatar, what are, we, what are we going to do to hold that space um, generation after generation? So my comment to like a collaborative relationship is to that part, like mm -hmm. adults taking up our responsibility, like, hey, we're going to embrace the responsibility of keeping this line of Parampara teachings available to future generations of jivas. And no, we're not the highest level of Mahapadva yet. No, we're not the highest level of disciple yet. But we're going to play out this mythological, not in the mythological relationship, not in the archetypal relationship is a better word. We're going to play it out. We're going to serve that archetype by playing it out. But we're going to have to do it slightly different than these self-effulgent entities that do it naturally. We're going to have to, because we're, stepping into an archetype we're going to have to do it in a little bit of a way that's um, relevant for us and where we're at in our development mm. that means that the guru is going to have to be like super duper honest that means the disciples are going to have to be super duper honest like if you're not having the highest level of revelations 
Nope, there's no problem in that. But then you have to take up your responsibility of being the teacher, you know, who, who really injects Sambandha, Abhideya, Prayocha, and Gan into the heart of the disciple. You test him, which is something you mentioned in Bhakti Sundarbha. You should test your disciples. Y'all should probably like stay together for at least a year to examine each other. Like all these sorts of things should be in place so that there could be a healthier relationship because obviously individuation isn't going to take place in total isolation. Mm -hmm. We're going to need that sort of assistance. So my comment about that dynamic between guru and disciple is for those of us who are going to be stepping into that archetype to serve the parampara, but we may not necessarily be the self-effulgent fully where the full ingress of sharp shakti is just, you know, shooting out of our eyes. And like, if we're not that, then we're going to have to, you know, as a service, if we want to serve a parampara, how do we do that in a healthier way from where we're standing? And my comment about that collaboration thing is coming from that space. And then I'm saying this just as a sort of sucker, like to soften the ball, like, oh, these guys are, they don't, they don't believe in the self-effulgent acharya, they don't believe in the gurus. No, I believe in all of that, but I'm also trusting what my eyes are seeing, not only in my own sanghas, but in sanghas across the board. Especially when you say in India, you see all sorts of wild stuff or you hear about all sorts of wild things. So it's like, okay, if I have to trust, I do trust my vision. You know, mm -hmm. I'm not a full adult yet, you know, to be honest, but I'm adult enough to trust my own vision when I'm seeing it. And I'm like, okay, there probably needs to be some adapting here if this is going to be a healthier, sustainable thing until God decides to send into the world another self-effulgent personality. Mm -hmm. who just revives the whole thing powerfully, like a Mahaprabhu mm -hmm. or Prabhupada, whoever it is. Mm -hmm. So I, I kind of want to throw that out there just to temper, because I know the, the topic around Guru gets very sensitive and people feel like they're like sliding, you know, or cutting down their mm -hmm. faith in Guru. And I, so this is what I'm speaking to. That's what I'm, I'm going to clear it up. Thank you for the disclaimer. and <laughs> totally agree, yeah. Uh, don't come for me. That's what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, and it's important, as you mentioned, to have a dynamic understanding of parampara. Again, not just to remain attached, okay, to the nostalgia of the Mahabhagavat of of this last century or whatever, which of course one one will acknowledge and one will cherish and one will embrace and adore. But at the same time, uh, parampara means the whole thing has to go on. Parampara means one after another after another. So each particular generation so to say has to make their contribution as you mentioned even if one is not a Mahabhagavat or someone who is serving the capacity of guru and also yeah not just expect not forcing Mahabhagavatness into the environment uh, because that can be again another way of ex escaping from one's own responsibility of what am I supposed to do not being a Mahabhagavat it's not that, okay you are not Mahabhagavat so you cannot add any contribution to the parampara. No, it doesn't work like that to just over-absolutize and we can only learn and receive contribution from the topmost personality. Um, so yeah, that's a commitment we, we all of us have, no? what, what we can do and probably the, the, the changes that the community needs in, a, in any particular time, let's say this time, maybe we can, have, some may agree, I do not feel there is such an empowered Mahabhavat, although some others may feel there is. <laughs> So, but at the end of the day, just don't wait for the second coming of Christ, the second coming of Prabhupada, the second, the third descent of whomever, but try to do your contribution from whenever, from whatever you are 
as much as you can. That that that's part of our individuation and service to the to the parampara. And again, going back to the relationship and the dynamics, guru disciple dynamics, and the color, collaborative spirit of that. For me, it's, it boils down to what Rupa Goswami mentions, Bishrambena Guru Seva, the nature of the guru-disciple relationship is one of friendship. So they are, of course, not ordinary friendship, but it should evolve, at least naturally, into a collaboratory effect in which the two parts are fully committed to each other, to a common ideal, and investing their uh, their self in, in, in order to be further individuated in their in their exchanges with one another. So anyhow, some thoughts in connection to that. Yeah. Uh, there are a few of them. Let's see if there's any comments to add to the conversation in this connection. Jamun is saying, after 40 years of practicing spiritual life, I still feel like I get treated like a child by others who may have joined five, 10 years before, which I find stifling. Why are you laughing, Jai Jagannath? Because that's how I, I deal with trauma. That's how I process, you know, being cut down. For me, everything has, a joke is a little, uh, uh, humor gives a sense of like transcendence to the, the horrors of, you know, encounters with different aspects of this world. So um, that's just my own way of trauma response. So I don't mind. Okay. And I think also in this connection, part of individuation uh, will be to allow ourselves to really accept deeply and understand there is really people in different stages, different degrees of evolution, of consciousness, of unfolding. Right. To really accept that will, that will be always the case and that will be always happening. So don't be ex extremely affected by certain reactions or ways people treat each other because that will always happen. I'm not saying that to become also like conformist and let's not do nothing because it will always be there, but just a type of mature acceptance of, of that fact on one side. Uh, it will happen. So allow that to happen and also allow to, to understand that there's different people with different... I remember when I was reading a little bit of the Enneagram and it's as simple as it is, but there's different people. There's people with different psychologies, with different moods, with different ways of processing reality, understanding. So there's not one single absolute template that here it is, you swallow it, and it's, it's magically applicable to every single practitioner. Because again, that's a form of impersonalism for me, which is one of the main points in my, in my book, which took me to speak on radical personalism because I saw so much impersonalism being presented in the name of personalism, which is even more tricky and complex. So allowing people to be, uh, to, to embrace their individuality and, and their present nature, acquired nature even, and, and also the interesting point, just reaching, wrapping up and reaching a few final sections of our episode. But even interestingly, to acknowledge the glory of bhakti in the sense that bhakti has such a power to reach our life that no matter which is our particular present empiric character, Bhakti will come and will spiritualize our particular situation. And the point is that uh, there's one quote from the Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. I have it here. I will share it. It says, while Bhakti in the form of Bhava Bhakti is totally independent of all mental functions, still it manifests in the person's empiric character and in his mental functions and becomes one with his mind, his character, and his individuality. Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu 134. So that speaks about how 
you will find when you speak of Bhava Bhaktas or Prema Bhaktas, you will find different devotees who are very different from each other in terms of character, individuality, way of thinking, way of practicing. Like you have a Pundarik Vidyanidhi lying on, on the sofa, not thinking about the world suffering because he was so immersed in Lila. And then you have a Vasudev Data praying to Mahaprabhu, like, give me the karma of all every living entity and I remain here paying. And all of both of them are on the equal level, so to say, of attainment and transcendence, but they are so different in their how they ex express their own nature, so to say. And again, their own individuated beings, if you will. So I think it's important to bear that in mind. What do mm. you say, Jack? Yeah, <laughs> of course. Um, it's interesting that when you read sacred texts, you do encounter the variegatedness of the personalities therein. But then when you come to practice, particularly like in a communal con context, mm -hmm. it becomes devoid of variety. Mm. And like one is even afraid that if there's too much variety, then that would account for like a deviation. Mm. Uh, so it's, um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating actually. And I, I guess it's probably due to the, uh, the issue of collect, um, connecting our sense of self too strongly to the collective community and therefore needing like validation in order to feel secure in our devotional mm. service. And so, yeah, you can encounter the, the expanse of variety in scripture. It just, it just doesn't occur to you that it's okay to be who you are um, and do devotion. You don't feel that way. You feel that I must step into X, Y, Z in order to be bona fide, in order to be validated in order to maintain my status within a community. And so, yeah, it's, there seems like to be a very strong sociological element that's arresting, also arresting our ability to step forward into who we are. I, I, I encountered this quote, <clears throat> this is probably like my final statement, but I encountered this quote where um, I think in the Wild Edge of Sorrow book I was reading that I liked. It says, know who you are, accept who you are, and then be who you are. And probably there could be a fourth element and become, you know, whatever, become what you must. <laughs> yeah, all that you can be. Yeah, you have a potential. All that you can be, like a fourth element. So I was, and I really didn't get time to flesh out the other idea that I had in my heart for this topic, which was that, you know, we, to know oneself, even like on a psychophysical nature uh, level, is you speak a lot to that in your essay in the third part of the book of this particular topic. Um, even the verse "Karpanya dosho uparata swabhava." Mm. Now, our common our our chai is common that karpanya means basically a vidya, so like the non-awareness of the soul. But traditional uh, other traditional commentaries are just the straightforward sense of it is that. Arjuna Swabhava is covered by too much emotion, you know, mm -hmm. and because of the influx of emotion, it's like hijacked his ability to know himself, to know himself in this case means to know himself as a Chatriya. So there's a huge element of the Gita that's speaking to that level of existence, particularly the first six chapters of Gita, although it intersperses the deeper teachings, Krishna is also very much speaking to that level of his existence. Even in Krishna's take on the soul, when in the first teaching from verse 11 to 30 of chapter 2, 
he said to him about Atma Tattva, the convincing to fight in the war. Mm -hmm. Like, that's the context in which that teaching is coming. So there are a lot of teachings coming on that level. So like to know myself even on that level and to accept myself and then to be that and then to become all that you can be. Mm. Like that, that's, if I had to think of like a sutra, these four little sutras would be it for naming that topic. Similarly, the seven- Can you repeat them again one time for everyone? Yeah, the, the first one is to know yourself. Mm-hmm. The second is to accept yourself, like, mm -hmm. accept the, like that's what it is. It's not something else. An another hard thing to do. The third one is then to be yourself, and the fourth one, the fourth one we just added just now, yeah, to become all that you can be. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's true on the psychophysical level, which your book is speaking to a lot in this particular topic. That's true on the Sadak Deha level, but our charts have given us more of a system of flesh out how that unfolds. And it's also true on the like topmost level of our aspiration with the Siddha Deha, which frankly speaking, most practitioners, it seems to me, we need to flesh that out also. It's just completely contracted and there's like hardly any concept of what mm -hmm. our true desire is. So individuation, it seems to me, healthily would happen on all of these levels and they're not necessarily mutually exclusive there's like they help each other to, in a particular way um yeah i wanted to give voice to that because i didn't give time to flesh out that thing it's in my heart um so i didn't get time to flesh out a lot but i wanted to at least throw it in there that this is how i'm conceiving of the topic and we spoke a lot to me i feel like we focus a lot on things that re we resist this participation Hmm. Uh, with reality so the fear the attachment the anger the child psychology um the guru disciple thing like we've talked about these different levels that kind of arrest our flow of individuation but when we're ready to like flesh that out then it probably needs to happen on these levels yeah i wanted to throw that in there yeah Thank you so much, Jagannath, for such a summary. I was planning to do the summary of today's episode, but you already did it. So <laughs> thank you so much. Beautiful. And totally agree. And I appreciate this point of individuation being not only a psycho-emotional need, like a preliminary prerequisite for proper balanced bhakti, but that will be a principle and reality in all the different stages. So just for us to get accustomed to coexist with this principle of individuation from wherever we are till whatever we will be for eternity and wow. continually unfolding continually. So thank you so much for, for that idea. Uh, there's one quote from Bhakti Rasa before finishing. You have one, five more minutes. Ah, yeah, I'm free. I left it open. Okay. Eternity is on our side. So Bhakti Rasa <laughs> is saying, do you think that some of our necessity to define ourselves from our environment has something to do perhaps pervertedly with Krishna himself coming into being by the love in his environment? What do you say? Do you understand the question? I'm, I'm still processing it. I just have to find ourselves from our environment has something to do with Krishna himself coming into being by the love. Yeah, I will say oh, that. Okay, that, I get what Well, yeah. Rasa main implies that due to the yeah. type of love that Krishna receives, he also is affected by that. He becomes... As I like to put it, he's a byproduct of the love of his devotees. If you put Hanuman in front of Krishna, he becomes Ramachandra. Right. If you put Sri Radha, he becomes curved in tree and so on. So he's he reacts according to the environment he is in. So she makes the point in connection to ourselves, in connection to the environment. 
So what yeah. do you think? Um, yeah, it's a it's an interesting insight. I my mind was going to <clears throat> the whole Jagannath Ratha Yatra and Krishna is not his full self in Dwarka. He's mm -hmm. his full self in Vrindavan. Therefore, bring him into that environment so that his full self can blossom. Hmm. Um, I mean, that that statement of Bhakti Rasa's makes sense to me. Like she said, albeit pervertedly, it may make sense hmm. that there's a need to, um, yeah, there's a, maybe because that psychology exists in God himself, the source of the world, there's a sense of our finding ourselves in community also. And that actually makes a lot of sense psych psychologically. Sometimes I think about Brahma, you know, he's the first living entity in the universe in our cosmovision. And I always wonder about that, like to be like the first entity with no- Without community. Without community, no one to like play off of. If someone asks him what mission do you belong to, he has no <laughs> nothing to reply. <laughs> I always think about like how wild that is. Like, I mean, we hear that story, we tell that story a lot, but I'm like, try to imagine what it's like being the only living entity in a dark world. Um, that's too but, much. Yeah, that's, <laughs> and that's why he starts to look for light somewhere inside, and he hears the word tapa, which means fire right. or light. So right, he needs right. light in the midst of darkness, and he, yeah, he has to do something about it. Find communities and how to find himself. He ultimately, yeah. I think then I would also say that if this is true, let's just take it for granted that it's true axiomatically. It, it seems to be true axiomatically that we do, we're almost obliged to find ourselves um, in context of community. Hmm. But then I think where that starts to lend itself to the need for like moving from community to community, my mind's going to Gopal Kumar where he has this like gnawing feeling in his, you know, gut hmm. that the fullness of myself can't be realized in this particular environment. Mm -hmm. And therefore he has to like shift to another environment. And um, I, this is again, coming back to the fear point, this is probably the fear that would prevent us from doing that. Like when something has fed you for so long, but isn't feeding you at the present moment, how do you like process the experience of needing to move on? Mm -hmm. you know, and yeah, this is what Jamuna in some connection is saying. Stepping away from seeking the approval from a collective institution is personally painful yet freeing. Right. right. So, yeah, somehow yeah. The, as challenging as that may be, the necessity for not to discarding community altogether, but to reaching new lay new levels of community, so of common unity, because ultimately mm -hmm. that's what community is about. So there are always. If the necessity for a further common unity is there, that may take me to a different type of swatajya, swatajya, sorry. Yeah, yeah. God will be with us. Uh, we have to have that faith at the end of the day that God is always with us and that really whatever is happening to us is in fact God. We're actually witnessing God. Yeah. And our business as the witness is just to respond participate like a dance yeah no now he's doing like one of those dips where you you know and he tango tango yeah he dipped me a little bit too deep i wasn't ready for that one but okay yeah. that's what he gave me and now i have to respond to that yeah so I, yeah i come from argentina which is the place where tango was created <laughs> okay. so i have no excuse to to see reality in those in those terms but but yeah, i totally agree like i remember when i put one line in the book like god comes to your life 
disguised. No, God, God comes to you disguised as your life. <laughs> no? So whatever it comes to your life, that's God coming, as you mentioned. So the importance of, as you quoted Pariksit Maras many times, when yeah. he will see that the curse of the Brahmin, okay, this is Krishna himself embracing me in a very unique way today. No? So Good luck to us all. <laughs> yeah, good luck to us all. So thank you so much, Jagannath, for coming. And for those, again, who would like to continue learning from him, hearing from him, I'm sharing again the website is science hyphen off hyphen yoga point dot ghost dot io and again today jajagana has gave has given a very interesting trailer of many of other things he will be sharing in our retreat in ypsilanti which will be from july 28th to 30th still there are some places to go so you can we are invited there are there is the link there tickettailor.com slash events slash the harmony collective slash nine three nine four one six so since also since we mentioned the harmony collective in michigan i would like before concluding to announce our next episode which will be with deva madhava prabhu from the harmony collective from michigan who will be joining me and jagannath actually in our retreat the three of us will be speaking on different topics concerning uh, radical personalism like the ones we shared today so this next episode will be on saturday 22 of July, so like in 10 days or so, nine days, at 10 a.m. EDT time. And the title of the this third episode will be The Individual as the Heart uh, of the Institution. Mm -hmm. So basically that. So thank you so much to all of you. Thank you so much, Jai Jagannath Prabhu, for your presence, your wisdom, your friendship, and so many other things. And to you all very soon. Thank you. Um,